Acts chapter 7 in your Bible. So we continue in the series, A Church on Mission. I'm titling the sermon today, Covering Your Ears to the Truth. Covering Your Ears to the Truth. Have you ever tried to tune somebody out by covering your ears? I mean, maybe you didn't literally cover your ears, but you really felt like it. Because you had no intention of listening. I think teenagers are the best at this. Tune out their parents by putting their headphones in their ears. Husbands tune out their wives by turning up the television. Moms tune out their screaming kids by shutting the door to their room and locking it. And sometimes we have good reason for wanting to tune somebody out. Maybe what somebody is saying, we don't want to know. Such as the ending of a show or the ending of a movie or the score of a game. We don't want them to spoil it for us, so we just tune them out. Sometimes it's something we don't like to hear. Maybe because it's crude or gross or just loud. Maybe your husband's about to tell you what he just spent on that new gun and you just tune him out because you don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss. Sometimes it has, if we're honest, has everything to do with the person talking. As humans, we have other humans that just get on our nerves, right? And when they're talking, there's only two options. Strangle them or ignore them. Ignoring them is certainly the better option. We all have times when we cover our ears and refuse to listen. But I think we'd agree that this tendency can cross over from our human relationships to our relationship with God. We have a tendency at times to tune out God's word, the truth, as it speaks into our life. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our text this morning. Stephen is, is going to give one of the best defenses of the gospel that we read in all of scripture. And yet his Jewish audience who heard him loud and clear is going to close their ears to the truth. If you remember last week, we were introduced to this man named Stephen, a godly man, Christ-like man. On this particular day, he happened to be in the synagogue where he got into a theological argument with a bunch of well-studied Jews. We read and studied last week where he won the debate. Even these well-studied Jews, maybe before he was apostle, the apostle Paul was there debating with Stephen. Even he couldn't keep up with the wisdom of Stephen's arguments. And so they assembled this kangaroo court of sorts to twist his words and accuse him of blasphemy in five areas. They said he blasphemed God and Moses and the law and the temple. And then he blasphemed their traditions. That made him so mad that they put him on trial for it. They made him stand before the high priest and give an answer to his accusations. That's where we pick up the story today. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then said the high priest, are these things so? In other words, the high priest, a very powerful man, looks at Stephen and says, did you say what they accused you of saying? Stephen, are you sure you don't want to take back your words? Are you sure you don't want to walk this back a little bit? It was Stephen's choice to get out of that sticky situation. But instead of weaseling out, he actually pressed in and boldly stood up for the truth. What Stephen does is he preaches one of the most potent sermons ever preached, which is given to us in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. And here's what he did in this sermon. He brought the theology of Christ down hard on the three main pillars of Judaism. That was his audience. And here, here was the three main pillars, the land, 
the law and the temple. These were uh, uh, the Jews, three false bases for confidence before God. To them, these three things were everything, even to the exclusion of believing in Jesus Christ. We're going to walk through each of these points. And we're going to talk about how many people still today tend to put their confidence in at least a form of the same three things that these Jewish people put their confidence in. My prayer all week is that no one under the sound of my voice would cover their ears to the truth today. Because I'm about to preach a truth, I believe, that could change your life forever. So let's jump into Stephen's sermon Here's his first point to the Jews that were listening. He said this, don't trust in the land to save you. Now, what's this all about? Well, these Jews believe that God had given special spiritual privileges to those living on the real estate of Palestine. Simply put, they couldn't see their need for a savior because they lived in the promised land. They were already favored by God. This is what Stephen was arguing against in the first 36 verses of Acts 7. Now, we're we're not going to read every single verse, but I'm going to show you the highlights. I'm going to show you the thread of his argument. Because what he's going to do in the first 36 verses is he's he's going to point to the fact that God blessed three different men. God used three different men. God met with three different men. Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And he blessed them even though they weren't in the Holy Land. Meaning God can bless a life and you can be right with God even if you aren't a Jew. Even if you aren't living in the promised land. So let's start with Abraham, verses 2 through 6. And he said, men, brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharon. And said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Sharon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for possession and to his seed after him. When as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise that his seed should sojourn in a strange land. And they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. What is Stephen saying? He's saying that God revealed himself to Abraham before he was living in the land. The point is that God blessed Abraham's life, even though he didn't yet occupy as much of a foot of the promised land. Now he talks about Joseph in verses 9 through 16. We'll read just verses 9 through 10, and he makes the same point with Joseph's life. Look at verse 9 and 10. And these patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. I don't know how many of you read the The Bible reading plan this last week and into today, we're reading about the life of Joseph right now in the book of Genesis. And this is exactly what what Stephen is talking about. He's talking about the fact that God used Joseph. He raised Joseph up, not once Joseph became a member of the promised land, so to speak. But while Joseph was in all places, Egypt. Now he moves on to Moses. 
He talks about Moses from verses 20 to verse 36. And again, we won't read every verse, but we'll see that God was just as active and present in Moses' life, even though Moses wasn't in the promised land. Look at verse 20 through 22. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words indeed. So God was with Moses in Egypt. Drop down to verse 29. Then this is when Moses was an adult. He fled Moses at this saying. It was a stranger in the land of Midian or Midian where he begat two sons. So Moses was raised in Egypt. God blessed him. Moses fled and began to mature and raise a family in Midian where God blessed him. Verse 30 through 33. And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came into him saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold Then said the Lord to him, put off thy shoes from thy feet for the place where thou standest is holy ground. Look up here. Moses was raised in Egypt. He he matured, lived in Midian. Then he was commissioned by God near Mount Sinai and God called that place holy ground. Holy ground is wherever God meets his people and not just inside the borders of Palestine. Think about it. The greatest miracles of Israel took place in Egypt, at the Red Sea, in the desert, not in the promised land. Here's Stephen's point in all of this. He's telling this Jewish audience that their occupying of the land has never and will never make them right with God. Yes, the land was a special blessing from God. The land was a gift from God to his people. The land wasn't bad. But God and his working in people's life wasn't reliant on where they lived or what land they occupied or the ground on which they were standing. Now, you may think I'm not a Jew. How does this apply to me? I think it's kind of crazy for a group of people to think that somehow where they live affects their standing with God. I'd submit to you that this line of thinking can still find its way into our culture today. We live in the good old U.S. of A., the land of the free, the home of the brave. A church on every corner of our Pledge of Allegiance has written into it under God. I hope it stays that way. I would say it's easy for a person to become Christianized in a country where the Bible and the church is so accessible. I'll make make the, the application more narrow and what I think is more authoritative. It's possible for somebody to be raised by good parents in small town America. And feel like they're a Christian when they're really not. See, being a Christian is not about where you live. Being a Christian is not about how you were raised. Being a Christian is a personal choice that every single person has to make for themselves. Of course, it's, it's a special privilege. It's a gift from God to be raised in a godly home. To be able to occupy land, so to speak, that's not anti-God or anti-Bible. But listen, that doesn't guarantee your right standing before God because neither our heritage nor our geography has the power to save us. In our Christian school, we was able to celebrate the salvation of a kindergarten student this week. 
one that has been shown the gospel several times and had a lot of questions. And Jonathan and Anna were able to lead their little daughter Amelia to the Lord. You understand that though she's raised in a godly home, that doesn't put her in right standing with God until that little girl understood the gospel, was willing to repent of her sin and trust in God for herself. If you're here today and you're, you're taken for granted that you're saved because you're surrounded by a Christian family or you're in a Christian place, then you are basing your confidence on the wrong thing. The first point of Stephen's sermon is a warning to not trust in their land to save them. Here's his second point. Don't trust in the law to save you. Now look at verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. Now look up here. What's this all about? Watch, study with me. The Jews claim to love Moses and and adhere strictly to his law. So much so that they relied on their strict adherence to Moses' law to make them right with God. So Stephen points them back to the man they say they revere so much, to Moses' words that Moses said for himself in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. He wanted to show them that there is actually one greater than Moses. Moses said it himself. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. What is he saying? From the very beginning, Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like him from their own people. In other words, the Jews' hope of redemption was not in Moses. It wasn't even in the law, but in Jesus himself, the greater Moses. The law was to point them to a savior. Now, of course, the the, the Jews in Moses' day rejected both Moses and the law anyway. Which Stephen talked about in the next few verses. We won't go there because I want to make application for us. Here's the point Stephen is making. The law of Moses, as strictly as they adhered to it, could not save them. And it can't save us either. Look at Romans 3 verse 20 through 22. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. If you're a New Testament believer, listen, it's not your strict adherence. Or if you're, if, if you're living in this time is what I should have said. It's not your strict adherence to the Bible that saves you. Now, adhering to your Bible and its teaching is what saved people do, but that's not what saves people in the first place. Reading the Bible and memorizing the Bible and teaching the Bible and making marks inside of your Bible and carrying your Bible to church, all of that is fine and dandy, but none of it in and of itself makes you right with God. The Bible points to the fact that you're not right with God. Kent Hughes said it this way, sometimes we like the Jews of old, make a fetish out of God's word. We carry it with us, mark it appropriately, thumb it piously, but fail to let it take root in our hearts. If we aren't careful, I think we, just like the Jews, can worship God's word more than we worship the God of the word. We can memorize God's word more than we understand who God is. 
See, if you remember in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, those religious people, these Jews, would walk around wearing what they called phylacteries. They'd wear them on their forearms. They'd wear them on their foreheads. They were these little cube-shaped boxes that carried pieces of parchment uh, with the Torah written on them, the Old Testament law. And and these religious Jews would, would wear these to the markets. They would wear them to the synagogues. They say many of these Jews would have memorized the Torah by the time they were teenagers. Yet these were the very same people that refused to hear Jesus. The word. They refused to trust in Jesus. Instead, what did they do? They put Jesus on a cross. These were the very people, the people that wore the the word of God literally on their forehead, were the very people that were about to stone Stephen for preaching the word to them. That shows us something so serious. It is possible for somebody to know the word of God without trusting in the God of the word. It's possible for somebody to be familiar with God's teaching, but never personally submit to it. It's, personally for so, it's, it's possible for somebody in here today to, to have a, a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. Might as well wear the word of God on your forehead. You know it so well. Might as well put it on your arm because you're so serious about keeping it. But that doesn't make you right with God. You cannot obey the Bible enough to be right with God. You are saved by faith in what Jesus has already done for you. You are saved when you turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. Not when you memorize scripture and read scripture and go to church to hear scripture and try to obey scripture. In fact, you will be still empty at the end of the day no matter how good you do. It's not about being religious. I hope you don't hear me demeaning obedience to the word of God. Every saved person should obey the word of God. It is the authority for our lives. We preached on that this last Wednesday night in our Bible study. We obey the word of God, but obedience to it isn't what makes us right with God because we could never obey it perfectly. So Stephen preaches to these Jews, don't trust in your land to save you. Don't don't trust in the law to save you. Let me give you one more. Don't trust in the temple to save you. The temple was a huge sacred cow among the Jews. And here was their mindset. God is surely with us because we have the temple and this is where God dwells. So Stephen argued against placing their confidence in the temple by pointing them back to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 66. Let's look at Stephen's quotation of that prophecy in verse 48 through 50. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? I want to be clear. We need to understand that both of the temples that were constructed were built according to God's will. Both were good gifts. So Stephen isn't saying that the people were wrong in constructing either site. They were wrong to think that these buildings were God's permanent home. Why? Because God's not constricted to a building. Unfortunately, the Jews did what we so often do. We take a good gift of God and turn it into something that God never intended it to be. And we begin idolizing the gift. This is what the Jews did with the temple. They became more enamored with the building than the one they were to worship within the building. 
Brian Vickers stated it well. In all their veneration and zeal for the temple, they have missed completely the God who they presume dwells there. I like Kent Hughes' statement even better. God himself was standing among them, speaking to them, and all they were worried about was some bricks stacked on each other. How does that apply to us? Well, it's easy for us to show up every Sunday to the place where God has chosen to meet his people right here at church, yet still miss God. I'll put it plainly. It's possible for for people to come to church, be involved in church, serve in church, get to the church, sing in church, join the church, and still not be saved. Be lost and unforgiven. How does that happen? I think it happens most commonly when people come to church with improper motives for worship. Let me explain. I think a lot of people come to church wanting God to just fix them. And when they hit a a low time in their life, they just heard all their life, go to church. And I agree, church is a great place to be when you're low in life. It's also a great place to be when you're high in life. Church is just a great place to be. The danger of this approach to church is is when somebody is using church as a temporary means to have their problems fixed. Kind of like a band-aid to their ouchies in life. They want healing, go to church. They want their marriage to survive, go to church. They want to overcome an addiction, go to church. Their kids are acting crazy, go to church. They just want to be a better person. Go to church. It's the start of a new year. Go to church. But Jesus clearly says that it's not the things on the outside that defile a person. It's the things on the inside that defile a person. Everything bad that we do and say originates in our hearts. He was speaking to these same Jews when he preached that in the Gospels. They were so caught up with their religious formalities, going to church, going to the synagogue, memorizing the scripture, adhering to the law, that Jesus said, hold on, you're giving attention to the wrong thing in the wrong order. And I think people come to church to be fixed by God on the outside without any intention of letting God get in on the inside. And so they get a little bit of counseling and they feel good because of a worship service and they they hear a message. Oh, that's exactly what I needed. And then they disappear. And they come back when they need a fresh Band-Aid. And Stephen says, no, this is not how we do it. You are okay with God because you come every once in a while to church. You're only okay with God when you have let God, through Jesus Christ, change your heart. Not your circumstance. Perhaps somebody would come to church and want to worship today as a way of adding God onto their lives. They're not wanting to truly repent and allow Jesus to be the Lord of their life. They just want Jesus to start being a part of their life. It's called consumerism. That happens in churches all over America. But I've got news for you. That's not Jesus' version of the gospel. Of following him. When he looked at his disciples and others, he said, if you want to follow me, here's what is expected. You pick up your cross, deny yourself, forsake all and follow me. There's got to be death. There's got to be sacrificially laying down of your life 
and dying to everything that is not of God in your life. Submitting and surrendering to God's rule in your life. Not just tacking God on as an accessory to your life. A lot of people can come to church and get all confused about that. Because there's something that feels good about doing the Christian thing on Sunday. There's something that, that is still somewhat culturally accepted. Makes you kind of a good upstanding citizen if you go to church and worship on Sunday morning. That's just what good people do. They go to church. They're raised in church. They bring their kids to children's church. They do those things. But, but that's not salvation, friend. I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Whether your motive is pure or impure. I'm just glad you're here to hear the gospel today. But as a preacher of the word of God, I've got to tell you as boldly as Stephen told them. That coming to church in and of itself does not make you right with the Father. You can hear a thousand more messages like this, but unless you make a personal decision to repent of your sin and put faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, I say sadly but true, you will go to a real place called hell. And I don't want you to. That's why passionately I'm trying to convince you, don't mistake salvation for church attendance. They're not the same. We see it all over the place. I just go and say my prayers and take communion and do my thing, then, hey, I'll be right with God and then I can go sin. And when I get my hands dirty again, I can come back. And that's not how it works. I think there's another person in here susceptible to this, and that's the person that's raised in church. How many are raised in church? Raise your hand. Yeah, you're a drug baby. Drug on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That was me. And if you're like that, if you're, if you're like that, you are susceptible to trusting in what's familiar without trusting in God personally. You come to every Sunday school class since you're a kid, vacation Bible school, youth camp, sing in the choir. You, church is all you know. And it's that person that is most susceptible to being deceived by Satan that they're okay with God because of what they're familiar with. Because of what their surroundings are. I've, I've grown up in church my entire life. Bless your heart, some of you changed my diapers. That's a bummer for you. Now I'm preaching to you. But there had to come a time in my life where being in this building, I recognized it didn't make me right with God. I'm too big of a sinner to be justified by coming to church. I need something greater than what I can accomplish to make me right with God. And that is the work of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I'm thankful to say that happened in my life. And it's got to happen in your life. And if you are raising kids in church, praise the Lord. But you better be extra intentional about preaching the gospel to them. That's why family devotions at home are so important because they've got to recognize their personal need of a savior. They cannot just think that by osmosis they become a Christian because mom and dad are. You've got to engage them with the gospel. You've got to show them their sin. You've got to show them they can't take care of it themselves. But Jesus has done everything they need. You've got to show them that. So there's Stephen's message. 
Don't trust in the land. Don't trust in the law. And don't trust in the temple to save you. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. The saddest part of the whole text is verse 51. It's where I take the title of my message. Look at their response. Ye stiff-necked, that would be stubborn, and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. I want you to catch how, how much of a sting this would have been to these Jewish people when Stephen told them this. You aren't just stubborn. You are uncircumcised. The Jews prided themselves on their physical circumcision and ritual behaviors. That's what made them right with God. Our willingness to get circumcised. That's how we are set apart from those unclean, wicked Gentiles. And yet Stephen and his description of them as uncircumcised is ultimately saying this. You are as lost and as unclean as the Gentiles you won't even go to the temple with. Everything that made them feel good about their standing before God was just torn to shreds by Stephen and his use of scripture. Everything they'd been taught, everything they had memorized, everything they had adhered to, everything they had preached, everything that they boasted of was just taken out from underneath them. And Stephen doesn't even stop there. He takes it one step further and he calls them murderers and betrayers. In other words, the conclusion of his sermon was this. Someone around here is guilty and that someone is not me. It's you. No wonder verse 54 says they were cut to the heart. Convicted. And they were so angry that they gnashed at him with their teeth. You know what that means? They growled at him like dogs. They were so fuming mad that verse 58 says they drug him out of the city, took stones and spent an entire day throwing them at his head until he died. These people just heard one of the most clear and potent sermons in history, yet they covered their ears. They tuned out the truth. Instead of humbly accepting it, they ignored it, they suppressed it, and then killed the messenger because of it. And people in churches every Sunday are doing the same thing. No, we're dignified enough. We're not covering our ears. And most people aren't walking out early disrespectfully. No one's causing a scene. But because the truth that is preached cuts to the heart. And it goes against everything that we've thought or believed or adhered to. We get stubborn. Stiff-necked. And we, we just tune it out. And I'm not so naive as to think that there's not at least somebody in here today that something that has been said about the way that you get right with the Father goes against the way you've been taught your entire life. I bet you there's somebody in here and you've been taught that baptism is the way to the Father. And you've been taught that communion is the way to the Father. And you've been taught that That daily confession to a priest is the way to a father. You've been taught that doing a certain amount of missions work is the way to the father. You've been taught that, well, just do good. Just do good. 
And at the end, your, your good will outweigh your bad if you live a good life. And hopefully when Jesus asks you or God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? That, that you'll be able to tell him, well, because I did more good than bad. And that's what you've always believed. And, and, and like Stephen's sermon, my, stir, my, my sermon has just crushed that line of thinking. It's, it, you feel almost this morning, maybe like the rug's been pulled out from underneath you. And the earliest temptation today for you would to be, be to get stubborn and tune me out and even worse, to make me your enemy. You're not going to pick up stones and throw it at me. We've got a good security team. I wouldn't try that. But maybe you would walk out so offended, just like the Jews. And you would say, I'm never going back. That's not what I believe. To you, I would plead, humble your heart. Look into the word of God yourself. I would even say this. Don't even believe every word I've said today. Set up a time with me or or Pastor David or one of our pastoral staff members and say, could you explain more of that? Because that's totally opposite of what I've ever been taught. Don't walk out and just tune out the word of God because it hurt today. Humble yourself and have a conversation. That conversation might be the bridge to you understanding how much Jesus loves you. So much so that he didn't leave it up to you to get saved. He's drawing you. He pursued you. He did the work. And now he's, he's asking you to submit to him. He did it. He did it for you. Some are saved in here. But you know very well. That it might not be the realm of salvation, but it might be the realm of sanctification, spiritual growth, sin. And you have tuned out your ears to the truth of those particular things in your life. Now, you know you're saved. You know you're right with God for all of eternity. You're believing and repenting of your sin and you know that. But there's an area of your life in which the Holy Spirit has told you that's not good. That's not right. The word of God has spoken into that part of your life. It doesn't matter who tells you or how often they tell you or how loud they, do, they get when they tell you. You're stiff-necked, stubborn, and closing your ears to that part of your life that God wants to grow. If that's you, humble your heart today. Say, God, I'm sorry. I, I have even made the truth tellers in my life the, the, the enemies. I have stoned them with my words behind their back because they made me so mad by what they told me. And God, I'm sorry. I want to submit to the word of God in my life. And I want to obey it without stubbornness. And on the other side of that is when you experience God's blessings in your life. I think I could boil down the the, the sermon to this statement. Put it up there. The end result of listening to God with your ears covered is the tragedy of missing out on God's best for your life. Whether it's eternity in heaven or if you're saved but closing your ears, you might be saved but you might be Discouraged, disappointed, defeated. That's no way to live. Let's give God our heart and our ears today and let Him speak to us. Stand to your feet, every head.